We ready? Herm? Who's back there? I can't see. Okay, we're ready. Good. Thank you. This morning we continue in our study of Romans and our overview of the first eight chapters of Romans. Remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel as the revelation of and the bringing forth and the establishment and continuance and the vindication finally in the resurrection of God's righteousness in his people. As a result of the fall, the gospel didn't come into existence as if it didn't, it wasn't there ever before, but it came into existence as an activity of God, always potential in God, God always knowing that the gospel must and would come forth, knowing that man would fall. So when he creates man, when man falls, God is ready to move through the gospel to redeem his name by redeeming his people. Amen? Let's make sure we get it. God moves in the gospel to redeem his name, to vindicate his name, to show that he is just, to show that he is right, to show that he is God, to show that he is omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, all-powerful, and all of that, and is a loving and just God. And he does this by redeeming his people. So remember, the gospel is about for and from God. So this morning... We begin chapter 5, and we're going to divide chapter 5 today. We're taking today the first 11 verses. Next week, we'll take verses uh, 12 to 21. In the first 11 verses, we're going to look at what the uh, gospel does in relation to our security in Christ. And next week, the reason for that security is our union in Christ. So if you would, let's think of chapter 5, first 11 verses as security, second uh, set of verses as union. Union precipitates and is the reason for security, but today, thank you, today we will talk about security, and then we, next week we'll get into union. So uh, as we go through this, excuse me. Oh, thank you. As we go through this, it is most important that we do what we always need to do with the Word of God. We need to see it in context of this is information, this is what I need to know, and whatever. But we need to allow this Word to permeate us, to get into our minds very deeply, and also to get into our hearts, our souls, our very beings, our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our affections, so that we are being conformed by the Word of God into the revelation of God. And so this morning, we talk about security mostly. Allow what will be said this morning by the Word of God to challenge you and me in any and in every area of our security in Christ. Because one of the most fundamental things that the enemy wants to do is to cause us to believe in some way, for some reason, and many reasons. You just did that wrong. You just sinned. You just... And when those things happen, this is happening about you. Look what's going on over here. Why is that if you were so... And he does that to unsettle us to shake us, and to disallow us from being the, those images of God that we need to be. Because we are imaging the mighty oak tree of Christ. Amen? The mighty oak tree of Christ. And we do not want to be those people that went a little 
breeze of difficulty blows our way, we all fall apart and all the limbs fall off. That's not a mighty, it's not an image of a mighty oak tree. And this is, this is as needful in me as it is for you. I am as much need of this as everybody else in this room. So let's let this speak to our security and hopefully anchor us, not in our position in Christ, but in our activity and reliance upon and trust in and faith and an embracement and walking with Christ. Father, make it so today. Make it so in Jesus' name. So in the previous chapter, remember the previous material we studied, Paul has just used Abraham and David as examples of justification by faith. And now this morning we'll start talking about the grand and great result of that. What does justification in faith show us? It shows us that we are secure and it shows us the reason for our security is our union. Security today, union next week, and then in the following weeks we'll talk about some other issues as we get into chapters 6 and 7. So let's open our Bibles, chapter 5, verse 1. Having, therefore having been justified by faith. Now, we read the Bible very quickly, and I have lamented that, and I have said on many occasions, do not read your Bible quickly. Read these words, which are power-packed words, carefully, considerately, prayerfully, meditatively, Receiving from God the message that he wants to communicate through every word. So this is just not a casual reading of a story. We're kind of moving along. And yeah, I read my Bible this morning. What did you read? Uh, well, I don't remember, but, but it was good. Having therefore, or therefore, having been justified by faith. So let's look at it. What tense is that? Remember, past, present, and future tense. What tense is that? Having been justified by faith. What tense is it? It's a past tense. What does past tense tell you? It is a past completed action with present day results. Having been born, I'm alive. Now, how many of us are still preoccupied with being physically birthed into this world? How many of us are still struggling with that? How many of us are still wondering whether I have been physically birthed into this world? How many of us are still hoping that this birth is going to be okay? How many of us are still struggling in those areas? If we are, Janine Coe can help you. She's a doctor. We can, you know, get some other help for them, right, Janine? We don't struggle. Why? Because, you see, this is a past-completed activity. We know something great and grand and totally new has happened to us. We've been birthed. We're here. We're the evidence. We see it. So we don't worry about that anymore. We thank God for it. We look back on it as an activity. It is principally important to us, but we don't live in the I wonder if. We live out of the good of. Having been justified by faith. It is past tense. We are now. May I repeat that word? We are what? Now. Now, you're going to hear this morning the reverberations or the hints of chapter 8, if you know anything about chapter 8. We are now. When? I can't hear you. I mean, if I said the Saints just won the Super Bowl, everybody here would be yelling and screaming and hooping and hollering. And okay, fine. And I will too. But. We are what? When? Now. now. And forever. For how long? Forever. Now, please remember this. We are when? Now. And for how long? Forever. 
We're accepted and declared by God as his righteous ones. Now, what can I do to improve it? What can I do to make it move along? What can I do to establish it? What can I do to affect the reality of this? Absolutely nothing. We have received it by faith as a gift of God, and we have it. It is God's gift to us. Can we remember that as we get, go through life and the enemy attacks us? But man, can we remember that? We are now forever set free. Remember Jesus said, John 8, 36 and 39, whom the, Lord, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are forever been released from or set free of our guilt and the need to achieve in order to gain favor from God. It's impossible for us to be less, I mean, uh, any more not guilty. It's impossible. And it's impossible for us to achieve any more favor than what we have. Can you get this? It's impossible. It's what? Impossible. I can't achieve more favor and acceptance. And I can't achieve more not guilty. It's impossible. So let's chill out. Let's relax in the finished, completed, complete work of God in justifying. Remember, declaring us as not guilty. So now, what are the results of our having been justified? Paul says, having been justified by faith, what do we have? First, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you knew, and some of you may have, but I don't believe any of us really knew it, so I want to warn you about raising your hand. How many of you knew that before you were saved, you were at war with God, and God was at war with you, which is even worse? We knew things were happening. We, we were dissatisfied, right? I remember when the Holy Spirit ministered to me, and all of a sudden, boom, he lowered the boom on me. Two things came out of my mouth, and I didn't even understand the theology of them then. Didn't understand the theology. Didn't know they were in the Bible when I said this. The whole thing's true about the Bible. And I said this, the war is over. All I knew is there was a war that was over. I mean, Donnie, I went outside, walked up and down, and I kept saying, the war is over. I didn't even know what war I was talking about. The war, Annette, was over. We're at war with God because of our sin. He is at war with us. But being justified, there's a peace treaty. Signed in the blood of Christ. A peace treaty. We're now at peace with God. Amen. Having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Now, I'm not going to go into peace of God. It's later on for another teaching. We have peace with God. The war is over. God is no longer against us. Remember, I tell you, you're going to hear Romans 8 today. That's where we're going, Romans 8. You see why Paul is building it up today to get to Romans 8. He's building it up today because we're getting to Romans 8, and he knows where we're going. God has declared that we are now at peace with him. It's uh, the Greek word RNA, the cessation of conflict or warfare. It's security. It's the creating of harmony and unity. And what's the source of this peace? 
We have peace how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Colossians 1.10 says what? That Christ himself, I'm sorry, he's making peace by the blood of his cross. In another place, Christ himself is our peace. Being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul sets it out in verse 1. Here is the basis for our security in a functional way. The union with Christ is the reason for this, but this is the functionality of it. God declares peace over our existence of warfare and antagonism and opposition to him. It's all finished. Jesus said in John 9, 30, what? It is paid for. The battle's over. I've won the war. My people now are at peace with me, and I am at peace with them. Remember? Okay? There's a lot more to say here, but let's move along. Verse 2. In the following verses, Paul is going to explicate the, uh, the, uh, uh, the benefits of this peace. Well, what does this peace do? What does this peace do for me? It has actual, real, current, practical effect in my life. So verse 2. Through him. Now remember, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about what does that peace generate? What do we have because of that? What are the results of that peace in us? Through him, through whom? Through Christ, through God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, through redemption, through the death and resurrection, through God's justifying grace to us by faith. Through him we also have obtained Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, now the war is over. God has given us something. He's given us something that only Adam had and only Christ had. What was that? Full, unfettered, and free access to the presence of God. Adam had that in Genesis do you hear the Genesis in this? Adam was cast out of the garden because of sin. Now being justified, what? We're brought back into that garden relationship that Adam had. Remember Genesis. Don't forget Genesis. Here. All this is because of what happened in the first three chapters of Genesis. And God is moving back to do what he was going to do in Genesis. And he's moving back to that, not only to get to that place, but to make it even greater than the Genesis creation story to make it even greater. So God is moving in a recreational activity to bring about the new heaven and the new earth, and we will be there, his righteousness uh, forever. So we have access. We have access. For the first time, the war is over. Peace. And now we have access. Access by faith into God's presence. How many of you want to be, enjoy being with God? How many of you enjoy being with God? Now, be careful on this one. Don't raise your hand on this one. Please don't. Please don't raise your hand on this one. How many of you believe God enjoys being with you? you know, that's a little more difficult. Now, how many of you would agree that is a little more difficult? God enjoys being with me. You know why it's difficult? Because where are our minds? Where, what are we thinking about? What are we concentrating on? We're concentrating on something of and about us, of our failure, of our weakness. We're concentrating on us as you know, fleshly people. That's what we're looking at. But God is not looking at that. He is looking at us as his beloved children. My grandchildren, I think twice in their whole lives have done something wrong. 
I think twice. You know, I love my grandchildren, and they may be disobedient, they may do whatever, but that does not affect my passion to be with them and want to be with them. Amen? And so God wants to be with us. Please get this into your heart and your mind. It's part of peace. It's part of access. I love being with God, but does he love being with me? Yes! Yes! Let's be free today of the bondage that the enemy wants to create because once we know God loves to be with me, it begins to allow me to be free to be with other obnoxious people. Oh, you didn't catch that? If God wants to be with me, it allows me to be free to be with other obnoxious people. A.J., you should have stood up and yelled and screamed on that one. Darlene was saying, A.J., say amen. <laughs> It's great. We have access by faith. By faith. See, now the war is over. God has given us access. He has given us the door to his presence. We, sorry, our justification is the door. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. The door to what? To the access of God's presence. Not just to heaven, to God himself. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is our access into the presence of God through his work on the cross and his resurrection. Too often what we do is say this, through the work of Jesus' death, through the cross, and we stop there. It is incorrect to stop there. Had Jesus died and the resurrection had not occurred, we would not be here today. Period. Period. Which one's more important? Well, if it weren't for the death of Jesus, we wouldn't be forgiven. That's right. But if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus, that forgiveness wouldn't have been ours. So which one are you going to go with? You can't. You shouldn't. Both are equal before God. Amen? So let's not be a church that makes one more important than the other. We're here because Jesus died. That forgiveness was applied to the cross through the blood. He was declared righteous. In his manhood, it was vindicated in his resurrection, shown to be, this was my son, and this is my son. And now that same vindication, that same righteousness is now for my people in the resurrection by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> by faith, we have entered the door. We enter the door into God's presence, into Christ, into this access. By faith, a firm conviction in the sureness of God's promises. Enter into this grace. It's the place of God's presence, the place of his grace. What grace? Where God is, there is grace. Where grace is, there is God. Can we be careful not to make grace and God two separate things? God is grace and God moves in grace. It's not that God has grace, it's that God is grace. Can you get that? It's not so much that God has grace, but God is grace. And so wherever grace is, where's God? He's in the same place. Wherever God is, where's grace? It's in the same place. So since we have God, we have grace. Since we have grace, we have God. Let's make sure we join these issues together and not dichotomize them. We can certainly talk about the distinctions 
in a, in a practical or functional way, but we must not separate these issues from who God is. In which, this grace in which, what? In God's presence. The grace, what? God's presence in which we stand. We stand now in God's presence. So you seeing where I am in the verse, where I am? Are you following me in the verse? Okay. Because the war is over, and because we have been justified, the war is over because we've been justified. Why? Because Jesus has won the war at the cross. The war was waged in Gethsemane and worked out at the cross. The greatest battle of all eternity as far as man doing the will of God, the greatest conflict occurred in Gethsemane, and the outworking of it is at the cross. The warfare occurs at Gethsemane, and the result of it occurs at the cross. No Gethsemane, no cross. No cross, no resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. No salvation, no universe. No nothing, because what God does on the first moment of creating, he guarantees that he will save it. You see, so there's no such thing as, well, what would happen if Jesus had not come to save us? Well, honey child, we wouldn't even be here. It is a preposterous stupidity to think like that. Because what God has started, God will complete. Do you, remember, do you believe this? Okay, that's Paul. Paul says, don't get into these stupid, you know, things, these speculations. Well, what happened if Jesus hadn't come? We, we wouldn't have been here to talk about it. You see, we, used, we now in God's presence are standing before him as accepted, as justified. God having declared peace over our warfare lives. We used to stand as the unrighteous. Remember? Remember in verse 18, chapter 1? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You remember that? Everyone was born unrighteous. That's where we used to stand in that position or state or status before God. God saw every human being on the face of the earth except his son after Adam dies as completely unrighteous, completely devoid of his own personal righteousness. Remember, we talked about that. If you don't remember it, get the CDs for that. We used to stand that way, and we thought it was okay. But now we stand how? As righteous. If someone comes up to you and he says, Gary, are you a righteous man? You have two answers, two honest answers. In Christ, because of my salvation, Yes. Now, I'm not always living it, but is this man a righteous man? Yes. Is he saved? Yes. Is he righteous? So when someone says, are you a man of God? Are you a woman of God? Well, you know, don't say yes, but let me explain why and how. Because you don't want to say yes and leave it alone, though they may think it's your own moral goodness that you're depending on. Are we righteous? Am I the righteousness of God in Christ or not? 
Am I the righteousness of God in Christ when the enemy taunts me and attacks me, when I sin and I fail and I fail and I fail and the enemy says, how can you? I say this, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. No matter what you say, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what anything else, God has declared me forever righteous in his son. Security. Security. It's better than Gorilla Glue. It holds you better. Because we now have a standing in heaven, we can stand on earth against all the evil. You see, if you don't know your standing in heaven is secure, you're going to falter on earth. If you don't know your standing in heaven before God himself is secure, you are going to falter on earth. Listen to Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 13, what does he say? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. (coughs) Why? In order that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to what? Stand firm of what? Against the evil one. Can we begin to be a church that stops faulting and falling and wobbling and doing everything else because that world is evil and because we have a malicious enemy. Can we stop that and begin to see I am a person of God, his strength, his power, and that enemy and all his forces, let him come and let's watch the power of God overcome and defeat every activity of the enemy as I stand firm in Christ. Amen. Get an attitude. Develop an attitude. Stop all the wishy-washy. Get an attitude. We are God's people. Amen? We are God's people. Knowing this causes us to be able to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Oh, can you feel the vibrance of God's Spirit in you moving and rejoicing, and God literally dancing on the inside of you as you and I proclaim who He is and who He is in Himself, who He is in us, who we are in Him, and what He's doing. Can you not see God in us rejoicing over us and rejoicing in the fact that we are His children and we know it and we are being defiant against all opposition because of it? Right? Right. Rejoice in hope. Of the glory of God. You see, because of all this, now we can rejoice in the hope, a confident expectation of obtaining something good. All of you hopefully have children who can hope for some good present on Christmas Day. They're hoping for something good. Amen. How many of you are hoping for something good? <laughs> on Christmas Day, on a birthday, gifts, good. I'm just hoping. I can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. Hope. Confident expectation. Why? Because we know the giver of the gift. We know the giver of the gift. That's why I can confidently hope. I'm not hoping by looking at me. I know the giver of the gift. I have experienced that gift, and I have what I have experienced will continue forever. And as he's given me the greatest gift of all, he will continue to work that gift in me and in you. Confidence. Security in Christ. And you see that hope. What is, it, what is that good? What is the good that God is going to give us? We are now participants with God in the revealing of His glory. Huh. We're fellow workers 
co-workers with God. I mean, how can it be that the God of glory, this eternal, supreme, sovereign, all-powerful majesty has said, I will reveal my glory, who I am in myself and how I am in myself. I'm going to reveal that within my people. What a demonstration of astounding truth. That's what we're hoping in. That glory of God being revealed in me and in you. So as the world looks at us, whom are they really seeing? My righteousness or God's? They are seeing God's righteousness in the righteousness that has been given to me. Amen? They're seeing God's righteousness in and through the righteousness that has been given to me. The result is, hope is, <clears throat> everyone, remember 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in them purifies himself just as he or Christ himself is pure. Keep your eyes on God's goal. Now, having given us a reason to rejoice, this is only verse 2, isn't it? Having given us a reason to rejoice in the hope of Christ's return, now Paul tells us how to be prepared for his return. Hallelujah, Jesus coming back. Hallelujah, Jesus coming back. I rejoice, I rejoice. But what about today? I mean, what about all the problems and the difficulties and the challenges and the turmoils and the trials and, the difficult and, and everything that's so bad about today? How in the world? Yes, I can rejoice in Jesus coming back. Hallelujah. And we should. That is not pretending. Thank God for that. But what about today? How do I get through today? Because, you see, it is this day in which God is displaying his glory through us. And we'll do it fully on that day when Jesus returns. But there is a this day activity of God that is as glorious to God as that day is. The day of preparation, getting to that day. Not preparing me to be more righteous, but working in me that righteousness which has been given to us so to display to a world that my righteous people in this fallen, unrighteous age are part of and a display of and the result of my glory. So what about this time? So he says what? More than that, more than just looking to Jesus coming, there's something more. There's something more substantive with God. More than that, we also rejoice in what? What? We also rejoice in what? How do we say that word? What, Vogel? Sufferings. How many of you hate to say it? Because if you say it, you think you're going to get it more of it. That's voodoo. Voodoo. <laughs> we rejoice in our sufferings. This is tough. I don't like this. I mean, I'm coming this morning to church, ready to teach this, and I pull out and I get behind some bozo from Texas who does not know how to drive down the street. And the ding-dong keep, and I say, what in the world is wrong? And I realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, God's doing something here. I need to keep my mind somewhere else, amen? 
Now, Gene would tell you I'm the most patient and calm person behind the wheel that ever has hit leather, but something happened this morning that was totally unusual for me, which is a lie, so I had to repent of that. More than that, look, look, we rejoice in our suffering. We don't put up with them and tolerate them. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These verses, 3, 4, and 5, are significant. First, let's look at it. Knowing we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? You see, if I had asked you, what's the most important thing here? You would have skipped past that word knowing. The operative word here is what? What is the operative word in this verse? Come on, come on. Knowing. If you go past knowing, you've missed the whole thing. If you go past knowing, you're going to get bogged down in the mud. You have to know the bridge is out. And if you don't know it's out, you're going to be in trouble. Knowing it's out, you can be prepared for it and do what you need to do to get across, right? Some kind of way. Knowing. So don't go too fast with the Word of God. Knowing. <clears throat> Because God has justified us, because we are at peace with God, because of that, we can now trust Him to use our sufferings for His good. We know that God is at work in us to produce the revelation of His goodness and His righteousness and His character and His glory. Amen? We know this. Knowing this, we have to keep our minds on this. We have to remember this. Sufferings and difficulties and attacks and opposition causes us to have spiritual amnesia. We forget, we forget, we forget, and we have to work and work and work and remind and remind and remind. Why is this happening? Why is that going on? What's going on here? What am I going? What in the world is going? God is doing something in the midst of this stuff that I'm in the middle of. How do I know that? Because I know that God's grace is good because I've been a recipient of it. Have you? Am I going to deny the grace and goodness of God <clears throat> that He's already done in my life in the face of opposition of the enemy and world and sin and flesh? Is that what I'm going to do? I hope not. I do it, but then I have to stop it and rise up and kick that attitude right slam down out of my body. I have to say, get out of here, Satan. I will not tolerate you. In order to be the present-day image of God, where do we get the word image? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Hmm? In order to be the present-day image of God, what, is, well, what are we imaging? The righteousness of Christ. We must know how and why to rejoice in the midst of all of our sufferings or circumstances. We must know how and why. This occurs as we know the truth about God's purpose and the means his means of working that truth in our sufferings. That he is using our circumstances, our sufferings, whatever they are. We're talking about righteous suffering. We're not talking about you were mean as a snake and therefore you got attacked. Well, you deserve to be attacked. <clears throat> when I'm mean as a snake, I deserve what I got. Remember First Peter talks about that. That God is using our sufferings to bring about the present demonstration of his righteousness in us. He's showing that he is superior to any and everything upon this earth to the contrary. Right? The world needs to see this. The cosmos needs to see this. Satan needs to see this. The angels need to see it. God wants to see it. <clears throat> you see, you thought I'd say God needs to see it. 
God don't need nothing. God wants to see it. There's a big difference. Let me, <clears throat> let me take a little drink here. <clears throat> so suffering. It's the word for tribulation in some of your Bibles, suffering. Ellipsis is the Greek word. Well, I, wasn't gonna, I had a whole bunch of Greek things in here, and I took them all out because I don't think we need that at this moment. It means to press down sufferings. It means to compress, to crush, to squeeze. Is this an apt, apt understanding of sufferings? Any of you ever feel in suffering? See, I should have been on American Dance Band, or whatever they call it. How do you feel about sufferings? You physically, look at me, you physically, you physically begin to bow down. Right? Sufferings physically affect us. They affect our visage, our face. They affect our walk. They affect our speech. They affect our posture. They affect us. Squeezing and pressuring. Sufferings, sin, opposition, the world, what's wrong, trials, tribulation, things ain't working right. They squeeze us. Jesus said this in 5.11 of Matthew, you will recognize it. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. For rejoice and be glad, for so they... For, for your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets who were before you. They suffered. And Jesus says, you're going to suffer because you're my prophet people. But rejoice and be glad. Why? Because God is at work redemptively in the midst of this suffering. These sufferings are the result of the presence of God's righteousness in us. Where Jesus said, they would not have known sin had I not come. All Jesus had to do is step into the arena where people were, and the, there were two groups of people. One group were being convicted and drawn by God. The other group were being convicted and compelled, I mean, repelled by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? you either one or the other. you either coming into Christ and being saved by the presence of Jesus, or you're being expelled, one or the other. And when Jesus comes in, he doesn't have to say, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm God, whatever. And, and he, he starts with, our very presence, our very presence among people, if we are walking with God in such a way, should be something about us that causes them to either be drawn to Christ or be repelled from him. We don't have to do a lot of preaching sometimes. Sometimes explanation, yes. There should be something about my life that when I walk into a room, when you are going place at home or else, <clears throat> whatever, that people can say, I feel the, man, who is this man? Who is this woman? Who is this man? Who is this woman? <laughs> they ought to smell the presence of God in us. That's what God wants. You see, knowing this about their sufferings allowed Peter and John, after, remember, getting beaten in John, Acts 5, they were counted worthy to, be, to suffer dishonor in the name. Worthy. By the way, I don't want to talk about this very much this morning, <clears throat> but there are two types of worthy. There is an unworthiness, and we have a worthiness. We have both. So let's be careful how we say, oh, I'm just unworthy. I'm just unworthy. Well, in one sense, that's true, and in another sense, it's a lie. How many of your children are not worthy for you to love them? How many of your children don't, are not worthy for you to love them? Therefore, are we worthy of God to love us now that we're his children? Yes or no? Yes. 
Is this my worth? No, it's the worth of Christ. I have been made worthy. Can we stop the foolishness and hear what God is saying? And I hear Christians say, I'm not worthy. Mm, don't say what you were going to say on tape. Let me just say it this way. It's that, right, Frank? That's about what it is. It just has to be eliminated from our vocabulary. Let's be real. Satan is clogging us up. Let's be real. Don't let him clog you. Be unclogged with the... What do you take that stuff to make you go... What's that stuff called? Let's be, let the word be a laxative to our clogginess. No, let, let, let's let it all out. It's poison if we don't. And let's be refreshing Christ. That's new theology for you? Well, maybe so. That suffering produces endurance. Once we know what sufferings are, once we know what God is doing in our suffering, then we begin to have the ability to endure. Endure means, or persevere. Endurance, hupomone, means to willingly, look, willingly with joy, remain in the pressure cooker. Remain in the pressure cooker. If the pot, if the roast, remember pressure cookers? If the roast jumped out of the pressure cooker when the pressure started, you would not have been able to eat the roast. It would have been untasty and too tough. But for the roast to be palpable and good and nourishment and for the family and meet the needs of the family, that roast has to remain under the pressure. Amen? Is God doing that in us? Yes. He is making us his roasted people. Yes, he is. It's trusting God's purpose and wisdom that we can willingly remain under the pressure of our sufferings until God's work is complete. And James talks about that, of being rejoicing in all trials in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. He'll explain that to you about what this is doing to your faith. It's proving it. It's bringing out the genuineness of it. What is all this for? We know that persecution works what? Tribulation works what? Perseverance. And perseverance works what? Character, right? Character. Here's where we're going. In justifying us, God was declaring us to be clothed with the righteousness of his son. How do we and the world know that we have been given the genuine character of God? How do we know that? How do we know that we had the real thing? How do you know gold is gold and it's not fool's gold or whatever? How do we know the genuineness? Paul's saying here, the, through the way we encounter and deal with and embrace and interact with our sufferings, embracing with joy or we rejecting with complaining. As Jesus' personal righteousness was proven in the midst of his suffering, so also is ours. As we embrace with joy, knowing what God is doing and trusting our God, God is proving to us and proving to the world that what he has created in us is genuine, proven genuine. It's the real deal. One of the biggest ways that we know that we're in Christ is not just because we said yes to Jesus one day. That is a beginning way. But the way we know more than just I said a prayer one day is what is happening in me 
And how am I reacting to my sufferings on a regular and daily basis? Do I see God at work and actually, yeah, faults and failures and success and all that, but do I see a general growing of the work of God and the reality of bringing forth His righteousness? Am I seeing the evidence, the fruit of righteousness in me? That's a much more substantial way of determining your salvation than did you say a prayer. I don't knock that. We need to have that. But that's a beginning place. But the major way, by your fruit, you will know them. By your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. You see, in this way, God is maturing us into Christ and Christ's character in us, into us so that what is true about us will be true in us. So that what is true about us is righteousness, is being made true about us. So God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts in verse 5, the end of it. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. We rejoice also in the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, the Holy Spirit, there's a lot more to say about this, but we must move. The Holy Spirit has been given us. Listen, God, the Holy Spirit is given to us as God's guarantee of our righteousness. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we know we have a righteous status before God. As the Holy Spirit produces in us, with us. It's not all God, all God, and none of me. It's not I'm out of the way and it's all God. It's all of God in me, with all of me, with God. All of God and me together. It's a cooperative thing. As the Holy Spirit works in us and with us, the reality of that status through our works and fruit of righteousness. So what am I saying? I don't think I said it well just then. That the Holy Spirit is working in us, with us, to produce the reality of this righteousness, which is called the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the Spirit. Now, uh, these last verses. Let's talk about how amazing this security is. Let me go through it very quickly. He describes our previous condition. So let's look at verses, especially 6, 8, and 10. While we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for us. Look at that. The while we were still weak because of our justification has been forever reversed. We are now strong in Christ. Can you stop worrying about your personal fleshly weakness and begin to embrace the reality of God's strength? Verse 8. While we were still sinners... The while we were still sinners has been reversed. We are now the saints of the Most High who sin. I have a personal problem. I'm not going to be upset with anybody. I'm not going to say a whole lot. I'll say a little bit, probably not a whole lot. When somebody calls a believer a sinner, we are not sinners. We are those who are righteous by faith. We are saints of God who sin. There's a difference. Can you say amen? I am no longer considered by God to be a sinner. Are you? That sounds so humble, but it's very arrogant and, in my mind, rejecting of God's truth. Now, there are going to be people who stand in the pulpit and say that. Please don't rise up. Peter said, just, but just listen, accept, you know, and, and think about it. Are we or are we not the righteousness of God in Christ? Amen? What are we? Does that mean I am, I am a sinner, or does that mean I am now a righteous man who occasionally, or maybe more than occasionally, acts unrighteously? Which one is it? 
Which one is it? If I got up and said, oh, I'm just unrighteous, I'm righteous, somebody better challenge me. An unrighteous person is a sinner. Are you getting the connection? Anybody missing this? We're the righteousness of God. How many of us still sin? Okay. Thank you for those who didn't confess that. Why? Because we've been justified. For if while we were enemies, look at verse 10. While we were enemies, God has reversed our enemy to friends. Has reversed it. In conclusion, what does Paul say? In view of God's amazing grace in our security in Christ, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now look. In verses 6, 8, and 10, he gives you four words. This is who you were before you were saved. I may not get them all in a row. Somebody help me. You were what? Weak and ungodly, right? You were enemies and you were sinners. Now, that's the worst place. Because we've been justified, every one of those were have been forever put away in the forgiveness of God. And not only put away, but totally and completely reversed. Now, if God has done the greatest work of loving, saving us, and cleansing us, and accepting us when we were in the worst place, do you hear Romans 8 coming? What will he do now for us who are in the best place? Do you get it? Let's not be overcome by the world, the flesh, sin, the devil. We are God's people. Don't be hesitant. You're not bragging on yourself unless you're doing it wrong. We've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, the next set of verses, we'll talk about our union in Christ. You'll see that in. See you next week.